from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Hello, hello. Good to have you here. Wonderful to have you joining us on the Badass Counseling Show, a lightning round for your entertainment and perhaps even for your enrichment. I'm Sven Erlinson, the host of the Badass Counseling Show. Whether you are joining us from Adelaide or Arizona, from Albany to Albania, good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. I've got KC, as you know, over in the booth, and I have Rocket the Rob, Rob the Rocket, <laughs> right next to Ree. I'll, I'll answer to anything, Sven. It's okay. Yeah? What's new and groovy in your life, Rob? Uh, you probably know this, but uh, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, but I look forward to hearing. One, but the light bulb has to want to change. Ah, <laughs> I like it. And that's true. Any therapist who's ever tried to counsel anyone knows that if a person is resistant, you ain't going to accomplish shit with them. All right. They got to want it. Okay. So I am taking your questions and I'm looking over here on uh, Facebook, but I'm not seeing the feed for questions. All right. As a man, how do I manage life? Um, how do you manage life? You don't necessarily say what you're talking about, but it ta you're clearly you're talking about the idea of that it feels unmanaged. It feels like you're not making it. It feels like it's out of hand. And you're wondering, you know, how do you do it? Well, the first thing you got to do is a couple of things. You have to have mechanisms for getting out all of your frustrations, all of your anger, perhaps all your rage, all of your sadness over shit that's going on or not going on in your life, all the areas where you feel disappointed, all of your anger at people and all the pressure You've got to tap into that. And, you know, as guys, we're taught feelings. Fuck feelings. Feelings don't matter, but they do matter. That's the shit. You wouldn't even be asking, how do I manage? Unless you're talking about the shit inside. What's implied in managing something is that it's so overwhelming or I have such powerful feelings or I don't know what to do that it's just, it's just too much. What's going on in here, right? That's what we're really talking about. So feelings do fucking matter. And you can only stuff that shit down so long, right? before you have to deal with it. So, and it means dealing with it. I recommend journaling. I really do. Meditation is good. But, and yoga is good. Sports are good. Working out is good. But that gets out aspects of it. It calms you back down or it gets an endorphin rush, but it doesn't actually get down and give words to the problems. I was watching a video recently. It was uh, Gary V. Vaynerchuk, right? And he's a marketing guru and successful businessman and so forth. And he was just caught in a back hallway and somebody asked him a flash question, you know, what do I need to be doing? And he says, you got to give words to your shit. And he's just like, oh my God, that's coming from outside of his realm of expertise. And he's, he's just nailing it. It's true. You have to give words uh, to what's going on inside of you. All right. And that means I, as you know, we strongly recommend uh, journaling, writing letters, and so forth. But the second thing you have to do, and in some ways this is even harder, or just as hard as getting all those feelings up and out, is you have to begin to um, have the courage to say no. You have to begin to have the courage to stop saying yes all the time and doing everyone everything for everyone else and and making everyone else's needs important and feeling like that you you know this whole notion you probably think you don't have worth unless you're taking care of everyone for everything else right you have to begin to say no at what point do you matter enough that you say no to people to things 
to more jobs, to get more money, to give more shit to your kids that they don't need when they really just want time with you. Whatever it is, it's the courage to say no. You're asking, how do I manage life? Manage life implies that it's basically out of fucking control. So bring it back in control, not by doing more, but by doing less. And that requires the courage to honor your own needs, honor your own feelings of what doesn't feel good and just go with the things that breathe life into you and cap it and create room in your life to fucking breathe. All right, next question. Shadow asks, when does the pain from an extreme taker go away? It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't happen. Zip, zero. Nope, won't ever happen. It doesn't go away. If you're waiting for it to go away, what you're really doing is sort of hoping it fades or you can pack it down by ignoring it. The only way it ever is gone is by going into it. Not asking it to go away, but asking it to come closer. It's welcoming it allowing it, inviting up all the pain from that extreme taker, all the memories of longing for them, all the hatred that you have for the shit they've done, all the rage, all the disappointment, all the betrayal, all of it, bit by bit. You don't have to do it all at once. Bit by bit by bit, you begin to bring it up, feel it, allow it out, give it words, write it out, write letters to that person. Bit by bit, you're sitting in it and allowing it. And until you do that, it ain't going anywhere. You're just playing pretend. You might as well have your dollies in your house and your tea kit out. And you're just playing with your fucking dollies if you think it's just going to go away. You're playing pretend. No, you got to go into that shit. Boom, done. Bottom line. And if you need help with that, again, that's why I wrote the book. There's a hole in my love cup. Literally to step you through the process. Bit by bit, step by step. And it'll kick your ass. This book will kick your ass. As will my new book, Badass Wisdom. It's out. It's now on uh, Badass Counseling website. It's a 366-day meditational with inspirational thoughts, but more than anything, challenging questions to take you deep. All right. I mean, really fucking deep. All right. Next question. <laughs> okay. This one, I don't always like getting tactical when it comes to relationships and, you know, he said, she said sort of shit, but you asked, so I'm going to take a poke at it. How do you beat an extreme taker in court? <laughs> Um, listen, that's what lawyers are for. So I begin by saying, I leave law shit to law people. I leave psychology shit to psychology people. I leave medical shit to medical people, etc. But you asked me, so I'm going to fucking tell you. Um, the best you can do is a few things. One, get yourself a great lawyer. If you know somebody's going to be attacking you and you don't hire a great defense system, you're just being a fool. And I was a fool. In my first divorce, I was a fool. The woman that uh, was divorcing me, her father had actually been the general counsel of the Securities Exchange Commission. So yeah, he was a heavy hitter when it came to law and he got one of his friends and they beat the shit out of me with the contract and all that. Anyway, um, or the divorce, whatever. Uh, so get a great lawyer if you think they're gonna come after you. But I'm gonna tell you what, I, I just put up a video on this literally in the last two weeks. And that is uh, maybe three weeks. And how to, you know, go through a divorce with someone where you keep it civil. If two people don't have the ability to be civil on their own and really do what's in the best interest of the kids or what's in the best interest of each of you and not spending a fuck ton of money on lawyers and just being decent, if you don't have that ability or your partner doesn't have that, that ability, and you, but you know you're gonna need to defend yourself because they're gonna come in hot and they're gonna try to hurt you and so on and so forth. I believe in, and it's controversial, but I don't give a shit. It's what I believe in. 30 years of counseling people, it's like, if you think somebody's going to try to take you to the cleaners or hurt you in a divorce, I believe in mutually assured destruction. 
mad, as they called it in the movie War Games, right? During the Cold War, you know, the Russians and the Americans, they all had the nukes, no one was gonna press it, because if you press, if you don't, technically it's not pressing a button, it's turning a key, but whatever. Uh, Air Force geek knowledge there. Um, you turn If you're gonna turn the key to launch your nukes, you know, if they're gonna do it, we're gonna launch ours. So what do you benefit by launching your nukes first? You're gonna die too. All right, it's mutually assured destruction. And so if you're asking for a tactical, a, get a great lawyer and interview a few lawyers so that cuts off the supply of the other person. They can't then go to those lawyers because those lawyers are now uh, bound by confidentiality and they can't, or conflict of interest, they can't represent your partner. So go to the five best lawyers and interview with them in your city. And uh, you know if you're convinced this person's gonna come in hot and come after you, then yeah, go to the top five lawyers or whatever and uh, that way he won't be able or she won't be able to choose them. Second of all thing you can do is, what is the single biggest thing you have that could cause them, inflict the most amount of damage? And again, I'm only recommending this if you know somebody is either already hurting you in big ways and hurtful ways, undermining your relationship with your kids, taking all your money, trying to hurt you, trying to undermine you to your own family, whatever form it might take, um, is what are the goods you have on them? Everybody has pain points. Everybody has a grand fear, especially in a divorce. What is it? the money, secrets that you know about them that nobody knows, okay? Or is it their fear of their own children knowing that they cheated on you? What is it? And then let them know that you have those goods before you ever play the card. The power is in the not playing of the card. Once you play the card, it's done and it's out there. Then you incite their wrath even more. But what are the cards you can, can play that you can alert them of the fact? And does that put the fear of God in them? right? See, if two people know that they have the power to destroy each other, they're going to both watch their P's and Q's, right? Their pleases and thank yous, their pints and quarts. So what do you got on them? And if you know they're going to do damage and destroy your family or destroy you or whatever it is, you have every right to stand up for yourself. And oftentimes the only thing that will stop a bully is the bully knowing they're going to get the living shit kicked out of them. All right, next question. That was kind of a brutal question, brutal answer, but it's like, unfortunately, sometimes we have to punch a bully in the nose. It's unfortunate. All right. Okay, here we go. This is really a, an interesting question. Michelle asked, over on Facebook asked the question, how do you reintroduce yourself socially after going through the healing process? Well, you're not the same person. If you've truly done all the healing, you're not the same person. You're not. And if you're not a really radically different person, you haven't done all the healing process, right? And so in a way, if you've done the healing work, you're less afraid of entering um, life socially, of stepping out there. Yes, there's trepidation, some, of course. But there's it, once we've done the real healing work, we've found a new sense of self. And what it really means is We've gotten out the voices saying, you're not good enough. What you're interested in, your feelings don't matter. Don't do those. That's stupid. And we start, as we get more and more of those voices out and get out those core beliefs that we were taught about ourselves that have been undermining us the whole time, we begin to just effortlessly be who we really are, pursue those pursuits, paths, purposes, interests that give life to you. And when you are on your path, doing those things that just give you energy, you will effortlessly Meet people on that path, near that path, with whom you resonate. There's really little effort involved. Just do the stuff that feels good to you. That's it. You don't have to go to a bar. You don't have to put yourself up online. You don't have to 
go on a singles cruise. There's nothing wrong with any of those. If you want to do them, do them. But there's nothing that has to be forced. And if you're having to force yourself or coax yourself or push yourself or get motivated, you're forcing it. And I don't believe in forced action. I believe in inspired action. So when we're truly more and more healed, we're just naturally living out who we authentically are. And the more we're being authentic, the more we just effortlessly bump into or attract people who take an interest and say, wow, I love who you've become. I don't know who you were, but I love who you are. And you say, wow, I think you're great. It happens effortlessly. Just have the courage to be your authentic self. Even if your authentic self is recluse, be reclusive. Even reclusive people find love just hitting them in the face. The gods have a sense of humor that way. So, Rob, what would you like to say? Um, Several things, but instead I'll read this question. All right. Why do I care so much about people thinking I'm the bad guy, especially people I don't even like? Oh, uh, that's easy. Because when you're a child, you're conditioned to believe that bad is bad obviously, and that when you were told that you were bad or doing bad or you're a bad boy or whatever it is, you felt what? Bad. And so it, you fear it from anyone when you were sensitive, when, you know, if, um, you know, if I were to be on my bike and go ass over tea kettle and, you know, wipe out and have, you know, cuts, you know, big old um, open wounds on my arm, they're going to begin to scab over, right? Well, you pick that fucking scab, it's going to hurt. It's going to bleed some more. It's the same thing. And if you keep doing it, it's just going to keep fucking doing it. You're so sensitive because the wound is so sensitive and you are conditioned to believe that if you're not doing the right thing and if people don't like you, there must be something wrong with you, which was the early conditioning. That was the early belief, BS belief you were taught about yourself. That if you're not doing everything right and if everyone doesn't like you, they must not like you. And that was a fate worse than death. You hated the idea of people not liking you. And even people that you don't like or don't care about, that's the power of that early conditioning, that even a little bit of someone not liking you hurts badly. And so, again, what it requires is going inside and finding those origin stories, those origin events that cause you to feel so sensitized and so painful and it's not that you're a naturally sensitive person per se, or that you're not. It's just you wound anybody enough, especially when they're a child, and they're going to be sensitive. It may not be your native state. It may be your native state. That's not even the question. The real issue is how much were you hurt and in what ways were you hurt growing up? Rob, was there a follow-up on that? or No, no? that was it. Okay. All right, next question. All right, uh, and this sort of uh, dovetails in with that, actually really nicely dovetails in, and this is back over on TikTok. So we're talking about this notion of being hurt and so forth. Why do I have to suppress my feelings of hurt with my mother when she won't acknowledge she hurt me? Obviously hurt her in the past. So now we've got an adult version of that kid who's being hurt and you know was sensitized at a young age, and, but except the hurt was coming from mom. And Mimi's asking, you know, how do I suppress my feelings of hurt with my, or why do I have to suppress my feelings of hurt with my mother when she won't acknowledge she hurt me? Okay, first of all, first issue, who says you have to suppress your feelings of hurt with your mother? <laughs> You're asking why you have to. I'm not telling you you have to. I know Rob and Carly aren't telling you you have to. Casey is shaking her head. No, you don't have to, but you feel like you have to, right? And where did that have to, where did that should come from? Well, 
came from the person that you're expected to defer to and suppress your feelings of hurt with, and that's your mom. Your mom taught you at a very young age that I don't want to hear your fucking feelings of how I fucking hurt you. And I so badly don't want to hear it that I'm not going to acknowledge them when you say them. And so you're saying, so what I'm saying is you don't have to suppress them, but you've been so conditioned to believe that you have to, that when I say you don't have to, you're like, no, you don't understand. I have to. And I'm like, no, you don't. But you've been conditioned to believe that you do. That is the power of parental imprinting from 20, 40, 60 years ago, however long it was ago that you were a child. You were taught to believe that mom's feelings matter and yours don't. And mom is confirming that every day. But the mere fact that you're saying, um, how do I suppress my feelings of hurt with my mother when she won't acknowledge she hurt me? You're wanting her to acknowledge that she hurt you. And you're like, yeah, no shit. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying like, yeah, no shit. In other words, she still has something you want. You want her acknowledgement. You want her acknowledgement of what she did. Maybe you even want an apology. But both of those imply that she even acknowledges that you matter. That you matter enough for her to be vulnerable. That you matter enough for her to concede fault. <laughs> and for all of you that think it's only men who can't admit they're wrong, well, here we are hearing about Mimi's mother. Say that three times fast. Mimi's mother, Mimi's, I can't. Um, you're wanting her to acknowledge that she hurt you. She clearly is not going to do it but you're still wanting it. So she has power over you. She has the power to make you miserable by withholding the thing you want. And until you, the, you reach the day where you can live without your mother's acknowledgement of how she hurt you, you're gonna be fucking miserable because she ain't gonna give it because she has power over you. Why would she abdicate that power to get you to do what she wants, to get you to feel small? You know, among guys, there's a thing called, you know, not just Napoleon complex, but a small man. <laughs> there's that great quote from the movie, Fletch Lives, where Fletch says, takes a big man to admit he's wrong. I am not a big man. In other words, a small man can't admit when he's wrong. Your mother will not admit that she was wrong, that she hurt people. Why? Because she's a small person and she has to keep you down as a way to build herself up. And she knows that she has the power. But what she also fears is the fact that you have the truth. See, this is what so many people who are the children of asshole parents or extreme taker parents, what the uh, children or adult children don't realize, and that is you have, all the, you have all the power. You're like, how the hell do I have the power? If I have the power, why am I even writing to you, Sven, these questions? Because you don't realize you have the power. You have so much power because you hold the truth. And your mom, in those cliche words, can't handle the truth. She doesn't want anybody to know the truth and she will do everything in her power to keep her foot on your fucking throat to get you to shut the fuck up. Why? Because your truths make her look really, really bad. And there's no way in hell she's gonna let you make her look bad. So she'd rather make you look bad, keep you down. She has to maintain power over you. She's not gonna let that out. So let me ask you this, and this is a question I love asking people who had, maybe had a parent who was really shitty or two parents who were really shitty or whatever. And I'll say, let's just say in this case with Mimi, I would say, what pisses you off more, Mimi? The pain that your mother caused you and all the shit she did to you as your mother and continues to do to this day, not even acknowledging the pain you caused. And just for the record, those parents who fucked up, if you're a parent who fucked up when your kids were young, one of the ways that you can begin to atone for your sin, so to speak, 
not getting religious. Whether or not you ever get that relationship back with your kids, the one way you can atone is by owning today what you did then. Again, you may never get the relationship, but that's the best motherfucking shot you have. But even better than that, you're leaving the world a better place than what you made it before because you're owning the shit that you caused. Okay. So back to Mimi's mommy. Um, you're wanting something from your mommy, but she wants something not from you. She wants something to stay inside of you, and that is the truths you bear. And so which is more offensive to you, Mimi, that she was a bad mom or that she actually believes she was a good mom? And every person I ask that question has a different answer. Bottom line is, until you don't want that from your mom anymore, she still has the power to withhold it. She wants to keep your truth down because you have the power to blow up her myth system that she has created in her family and around her, that she is a good mom. So she has to use all her power to keep your voice silent. You are a threat to her, and she will employ every power at her disposal to keep you to shutting the fuck up. All right, next question, Rob. Yeah, a follow-up from the person who didn't want to be seen as the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, Sven, I made pretty big life changes after getting halfway through your courses, left boyfriend and moved out, but then the pain was so bad, I stopped and went back. Yeah. Did I do the course too fast, maybe? No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. you. you you take anything. My courses, some, some, I discovered another church today. Somebody reached out to me and said their church uses my book or another one uses my video courses in, you know, parenting classes or some are using it in relationship classes. Some are using them in self care classes. And I, I just think that's beautiful. You know, it's funny. I didn't put any swearing in that book. So I guess the churches are able to actually use some of my shit. Um, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Uh, did I do the course too fast? No. Okay. The real question here is I felt strongly. I got away from somebody who was toxic and then I got really lonely. I felt sad. I felt bad. And then I went back. Okay. Raise your hand. If you have never done that in your life, you got the crickets, Rob, raise your hand. If you have, I'm going to cue Rob up here, raise your hand. Wait, Rob, come on. Okay. Raise your hand. If you have never broken up with someone and then got felt lonely or felt bad and you went back to them. Right, exactly. You know, the further you go through life, the further, you know, the more opportunity and the more likelihood that you've done that. I've done that. Rob, have you ever done that? I have done that. Exactly. We've all, you know been in a relationship that wasn't feeding our soul or that was painful or the other person didn't give a shit or maybe they were hitting us or whatever it was. And it just got bad enough. We finally had the courage to get out, whatever. And then you get down the road a spell. You know, you found your courage. You get down the road a day, a week, a month, and you go back because maybe they're begging to have you back or maybe you just miss them so much. There's nothing wrong with that. My girlfriend smoked, was a, a smoker for 35 years, and she said it took her five different times over five years quitting to finally eventually quit. She, and what she says is, I needed those four previous times to learn what I needed to do the next time and the next time. It's the same way with walking away from someone. We, the first time, you learn your own vulnerabilities, or maybe you learn, oh, you know, they promised now they're going to change, and you go back and you realize they didn't change. So you leave. And then they're promising again, even bigger. And so, you, oh, it, they're saying the things you always wanted to hear. So you go back, All right? It takes time. It takes repetitions. There's no shame in that. But with you brought up the work. Did I do the work too fast in your courses, man? No, no. But 
it's clear the benefit of this breakup that there's more pain inside of there. There's more sadness in there. Likely there's more fear in there, isn't there? When you got alone after you broke up with your man or your girlfriend, whatever it was, when you broke up and then you felt lonely and you felt sad and you felt bad, all those feelings are identifiers of more pain inside of you, more hurt inside of you that has to come out, but also more beliefs inside of you because very often what happens when we're alone, and this is a core one, so I'm just going to hit this while we're here. A lot of people stay in shitty relationships because they're terrified of being alone. And the shitty relationship can be with your brother. It doesn't have to be with a lover. It can be with a friend. It can be at work. We stay in shitty relationships sometimes because we're afraid of being alone. But it's not the aloneness per se. It's what happens inside of us when we are alone that we're most afraid of. Well, what's that, Sven? Uh, what it is, is all those old voices, all those messages come roaring back up and tumble around in their head. See, I'm no good. See, at least when he was here, even though he used to hit me a lot and he took all my money and he called my mom a dirty whore, even though he did all those things, at least I had someone. And this is why we allow people to treat mistreat us because I can't bear the thought of you walking away. Because once you walk away, all those voices come up. See? What a loser I am. Those voices, they were always right. I can't even keep a man. Even somebody who would hit me, I can't even keep a hitter. What kind of piece of shit am I, right? So it's it's not just the being alone. It's what are those voices? What are those messages? And if you really want to do the uber healing work, you go in and begin to identify what are the messages that come up inside of me when I am alone or when I'm most afraid? What are the self uh, attacking myths that I've been taught about myself. So anyway, if you're if you've gone back into what was a bad relationship and now you're seeing the folly of your ways, okay, good, learn from it. But also, you got to keep going into your healing work. All right, next one. Oh, and I will get right to that. More to come, but right now let's take a quick break, and I'll be right back. So I was telling a buddy of mine how he seems happier. He told me about the book that changed his life. So I bit. I went to the Badass Counseling website and downloaded There's a Hole in My Love Cup audiobook. I started listening to it on my commute home from work, and holy cow, it was a Louisville slugger to the face. I literally sat in my car in the driveway night after night, listening through to the end of a chapter or doing the journaling exercises. My wife started to see changes. I started to change a lot. My default response stopped always being anger. Now, I manage a team of salespeople, and I changed as a leader. I was listening more, not always just reacting. When their numbers started going up seemingly out of nowhere, I knew what the reason was. There's a hole in my love cup is now required listening for any person on my sales team or working for me, and I gladly buy it for them. You gotta listen to this book. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. I am back, and here we go. We are in a lightning round of questions on the Badass Counseling Show, and I've got so many good ones coming at me, so I'm going to bang, bang, bang them. Um, well, you know what I mean. Uh, all right, first one coming up from Jack on Facebook. Can I have your opinion, please? I'm trying to move on from my ex and have met someone beautiful. My ex lives beside me. He's the one that walked away. Uh, literally, uh, I feel guilty when I know I shouldn't. Um, and so my opinion, my opinion is, is you've got feelings inside you of, uh, bad, even though this person walked away from you or just sadness, 
longing perhaps even still inside of you. Maybe one of your feet is still back in that relationship to some degree. Uh, what do I recommend is to go into your feelings, flush out, identify all of the feelings. You didn't even really identify a feeling that you're feeling, which means you've got more feelings in there. Write a letter to your ex that you do not send, do not give to the person, do not hint at, do not intimate at, or gee, I'd like to talk about this. Just write the fucking letter, flush out all your feelings, and that'll begin to identify. And if you can't touch your feelings, that says you've got so many feelings that you've been like likely locking down your entire life. If you can't tap those fucking feelings, you are conditioned to believe not to tap your feelings. All right, so you've got to go into those and flush those out more and more on top of the guilt, on top of why, where was I taught? This should be in your journaling. Write this fucking question down right now, Jack. Where was I taught in my childhood that I should feel guilty by doing that which makes me happy? That which breathes life into my soul, especially when I have no obligation to this person from my past anymore. You are conditioned to believe that shit somewhere in your past. This is the stuff that you have to go into, the identification of all these beliefs and the flushing out of all the pain and the fears and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself. This is what the freaking book is for. This is what this free podcast is for. This is what, my, there's a hole in my love cup is the book I'm referring to, but also my new book. Badass Wisdom, both of them at badasscounseling.com. These 800 plus free videos that I have on social media, they're all there to help you go into this shit that's dragging you down. Next question is, sadly, I've blocked out childhood. Would you get hypnotized to recall them? Um, sure. I've used hypnosis before. I've used self-hypnosis in my way past. Um, I'm a fan of hypnosis. I don't use it uh, anymore, but, but th that's not good enough because easy, even if you pull up what happened, you still have to purge out all the feelings and the thoughts and the um, implications of that. And that's, again, what letter writing, journaling is for, and some other tools that I teach you in my book. But sure, if that'll help you, there are other ways to do it as well. If you don't remember your childhood, start with what you remember from yesterday. Start with the last time somebody hurt your feelings. Was it yesterday? Was it Sunday when you were at church? Was it last Thursday at work when this coworker said something really shitty and it hurt your feelings? Start there, journal that out. And the more you do that in the small things, the more that something will come up from a month and a half ago. And then something else might come up from two years ago when that one guy said the blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, as you are unpacking more and more pain out of that vault, out of your soul, you're sending the message to your soul that I'm ready for more. And you're also building your skills in flushing out pain and identifying core beliefs that you are taught about yourself and addressing implications from those actions. And then your soul sends up more and you begin to have more memories. You begin to have some vivid dreams and you write down what was the dream. And it's like, holy shit, that reminds me from my childhood, blah, 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 blah. All right, next question. Hold, Rob. I got one more here that I want to hit real quick. Hang on. Boyfriend says he is pushing himself to match my level of love. He feels guilty for having walls up. Tips? Yeah, my tip is if that's, um, you say boyfriend says, <laughs> boyfriend says he is pushing himself to match my level of love. He feels guilty for having little walls up. Do I have any tips? If he's saying it and not doing it and you're feeling, and you chose that word says, you, do you guys hear this? Listen to this sentence. What do you notice in this sentence? Boyfriend says he is pushing himself to match my level of love. How would that sentence read differently if she said if she had said, boyfriend is pushing himself to match my level of love? One says, boyfriend says he's pushing to match my level of love. The other one is, boyfriend is pushing. I one implies that I he's saying it, I ain't really seeing it. But if you say boyfriend is pushing himself, that's you confirming that he is pushing himself. Now that may not necessarily be true, but usually people's language belie 
something down below. They indicate something below. So my first question to you, Britt, would be, is he just saying it or are you seeing evidence of it? So I'm gonna take you sort of face value and say, okay, let's just assume you see that he is pushing himself to match your level of love and he feels guilty for having his walls up. Do I have any tips? Yeah, I mean, get him into counseling with me. Have him read my fucking book. That'll kick his ass. And let's see how badly he really wants it. Because at some point, it's not enough to say to acknowledge you have walls. At some point, you have to be actively engaged in the lowering of those walls or outright destruction of those walls. But I would want to ask the question, how long have you been giving love when he hasn't been? I mean, he openly admits he's not matching your level of love, which seems to imply that you know it as well. Now, either you know and feel like he's not matching your level of love or which is its own issue, or there's a separate issue, and that is he is matching his level of love, but he has such feelings of insecurity and so fearful of losing you that he just wants to give and give and give and give and give more. So it's not that he's not giving enough. It's like he's just this guy who can't stop giving because he's terrified of you leaving, but I'm getting guessing it's the former. So what you're saying then is um, that he feels like he's not giving enough. So why the fuck are you staying with someone who's not giving you enough love? How long have you been with someone where you feel like they're not giving you enough love? How long have you been with this fella? How long are you willing to stay with someone who's not giving you enough love? He says he is. He says he's trying. Really? Tell him, put the fucking, let's have the rubber hit the fucking road. Do the fucking work. So in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. Get any fucking ther good therapist, preferably. If you, can, if you don't want to come to me, get a, tell him. Prove it. Go get a therapist. You need to actively engage in the destruction of this shit. And this is where we'll see if he's just all talk, you know, if he's just all hustle, or if he's like real hustle, like where he's going to do the fucking work. Put a test out there. Put it to him. Say, listen, I love you, sweetheart. I want to stay with you, but fix it. I'm sick of hearing how you're saying you're trying. Fix it. Do the fucking work. Well, I don't know how. Well, listen, you can do X, Y, and Z. Some of the things I just said. Now fucking do it. But, okay, there's your answer. All right, Rob, give me a question. Do or not do, there is no says. That's it. Or as Yoda said. That's the that's Yeah, do or do not. There yeah. is no try. There's no try. And there's no says. All right. All right. Uh, you may have uh, gotten close to this, but this had such an impact for me reading it. How to see childhood molester's face. Journaling, not bringing it up. Another approach, question mark. Nightmares involved. A lot of times when we, are, when we have addressed something and we don't feel healed, or we say it's not working or it's not enough. Usually what that means is we're not going deep enough. Now, I'm not trying to diminish what you have done. I have no doubt that what you've done is significant. I mean that, okay? I'm not trying to be a dickwad here, but there's always something deeper. And where I would go with that question, if you and I were you know, in session or just having a beer and you approached you know, and we were talking about this, is I would ask you the question, um, and it's a strange question, but... First of all, the obvious one, have you allowed up and begun to flush out or flushed out all of your rage towards that person? All of your feelings of hopelessness and vulnerability, helplessness, have you? All of it? What do you feel when you think of that person's face? What do you feel? Or when you see that person's face, what do you feel? Whatever you feel, that's something that is unflushed. Every single memory can be decharged. Even childhood uh, sexual abuse, even abuse, even war for veterans, even loss of a child. I have counseled many people who have lost a child. Even that can be healed from, okay? 
So if you are having those feelings, boom, there's where your healing needs to commence and continue. But the other thing that often, and so there's deeper feelings down there, I'm willing to bet, but also very often what a ling- what a problem that we've done healing work on, if it lingers, it's pointing at something less obvious. Do you know how many families or people I have counseled from families where there was sort of one monster in the family and that monster parent, let's say, um, enabled the other parent to sort of hide in their shadow. And maybe the other parent was fantastic, but if that monster continued, then that parent who was fantastic obviously wasn't that fantastic because they didn't get you the fuck out of there. But very often, uh, a parent will hide in the shadow of the monster parent, or they'll be nice on the side, or they'll comfort you in and say, oh, I'm so sorry about mommy. You know, I'm sorry she's so mean, or I'm, you know, daddy, he's blah, 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 you know, and comfort you. And you think they're your friend, or maybe it's an auntie, or maybe it's a grandma, right? And you think that person is your friend, but what the real, so in the case of a molester, as you asked, what do you do when you see this? How can you see this molester's face and not have it, you know, fucking eat you up inside and stuff like that? I'd be willing to bet that there's some other issue down there that you haven't looked at or haven't wanted to look at yet. My questions would be something like, who let this happen? Who are, who are you really most angry at? The one who molested you or the one who allowed it, who enabled it, who allowed it to happen, the one who normalized it? I've had plenty of clients over the years where, you know, there was a molestation in the home and the other parent knew about it, which raises the fascinating question. And every person answers this question differently. Who commits the greater crime? The one who does it or the one who allows it? So I'm willing to bet just on the notion of allowing, which is a betrayal of the highest magnitude. I mean, this is real Judas shit here, right? They allowed you to take the bullets. They allowed you to be molested. They allowed you to be hit or they allowed you to be put down or whatever, or they just left the house. Dad was always working. Gee, I wonder why he was always working. Mom was a fucking asshole or vice versa. And dad allowed that stuff to happen. And if you really go deep, you realize potentially your hatred for your father exceeds even your hatred for your molesting mother. So if you're saying, you know, what healing still needs to take place or what am I missing? It's there's likely truths down there that you've either not seen or not wanted to see, and you need to keep digging. All right, next question. How do I control the anger I feel for my narc ex in front of my kids? Um, yeah, you, to be very honest with you, you don't. And what do I mean by that? Does that mean I allow my rage for my narc ex to come out when my kids aren't allowed? No. You, what I'm, I'm sort of being a little clever here, and what I'm saying is you don't control it in the moment. If you're having to control it in the moment, it means that when you're not in the moment, you're not doing the fucking work to get out all the fucking rage and pain. That's when the action happens. You guys have heard me say it a million times. Championships are won and lost when? In the off season, right? When you do the work, preparing for the season. It's in the week or the three days until you pick up your kids and then they come back to your house for four days this week. It's in that time that you need to be doing the purging work regarding your narc ex, as you call it. You need to be doing the purging work of all your rage, of all your sense of maybe it's longing, maybe it's love, maybe it's hatred. That's when it has to come out. You want to know why? Because then you calm the fuck down in life. It's like it's like you're saying, uh, you know, I got, I have a, uh, pretend this is a, pretend I have in my hand a Starbucks coffee cup 
full of piping hot Starbucks cup uh, coffee mixed with piping hot McDonald's coffee, old school before the big lawsuit. And it's just piping hot. And you're asking me, well, Sven, if, you know, and I say, well, okay, I want to put this down on this table. And, uh, you know, how do I keep that coffee from spilling out when I agitate the table? First of all, I'd say, don't put yourself in situations where the fucking table is being agitated. Second of all, it's not, you don't try to stop the coffee from spilling out when the table is rocking or being shaken. No, you go on your own. You pour some of that fucking coffee out of the cup. So there's less in there so that when that table is being shaken, it doesn't spill out. And then the next week you pour out a little more. And the next week you pour out a little more and a little more till eventually, and it doesn't have to take forever. Therapy and self-healing does not have to take five years. does not have to take 10 years. It doesn't. just depends how deep you go. So that eventually there isn't an, any more uh, of that accumulation of pain and rage and whatever else inside. You've gotten it out. And now you become uh, unflappable. All right, next question. All right, a lot of big words in this one, but we're going to take it anyway, and I'll just distill it down to its essence. Did you know, by the way, before I do this, did you know that, have you ever driven across any country, but at least, oh, I'll speak for the US, you know, if you drive across like the West or the Midwest or the far North or whatever, there are these giant like 100, 200 foot size steel structures that carry uh, electrical voltage, you know, and the power wires in you know hundreds, thousands of miles across the US. And the voltage going through those is what? 100,000, 80,000 volts going through those, right? But the thing is, is that that electricity is useless. It's useless to me, the average user, okay? It has to be brought down to lower voltage, right? So they have uh, stations where those wires come in and then they're wound down, geared down to lower power. So then the ones going through your city are what, 10,000 volts, 20,000 volts? But that's still no good. I can't plug in my toaster into 20,000 fucking volts. The fucking house would explode right? And so what do we have? We have at tops of telephone poles, you have the fucking converter box, right? And that converter box takes it from 10,000 down to 110 and 220. 220 for your dryer, 110 for your toaster and your curling iron and to recharge your cell phone, okay? Well, very often in life, the things that we most need are not the high powered ideas. We needed them converted down, simplified. So it gets the same power but accessible. Does that make sense? So I'm just trying to be the little converter box at the top of the telephone pole. All right, that was my clever analogy for the day. Electrifying. Thank you. <laughs> Ooh, well played, Rob. All right, uh, can you tell me the name of your book, Kelly Lester? Yes, it's There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and it's only at badasscounseling.com in audiobook. Uh, you can get it there in paperback and ebook as well, or you can get those uh, elsewhere, but all three versions are there. Also, my new book, Badass Wisdom, 366-day meditational is available on audiobook presently at, at badasscounseling.com. I have a question here. I want to get this one. How do you come back, and this is this notion of bringing it down from big words to accessible 110 for your toaster. How do you come back from altering personality for peace to the point of personal amorphousness? Okay, amorphousness means you've morphed into something not you, roughly. Uh, just putting it in simple words for simple folk like me. So the question really is, how do you come back from 
basically being a peacemaker, peacekeeper, excuse me, not someone making peace, someone keeping peace, keeping all my issues down. Let's just keep the peace. No conflict, no conflict. Don't stir the pot. My feelings don't matter. Just keep the peace. How do you come back from that when that really fucks up your personality? How do you come back from that? The way you come back from that is by going into the sources of that and the sources of that, and you're going to hate this. The sources of shit changing you as a person, bad shit, are not the relationship that caused that change. The sources are the shit long before that that caused you to allow that change. And you're like, well, I didn't see it. There were no bullshit. There was shit at some point. It started small and it didn't feel good. This is why feelings matter, people. Your feelings are your indicator of who you are. So when you're in the beginning of a relationship, this is why the beginnings of relationships, friendships, dating relationships are so important. Why? Because somebody becoming a shitty jerk later in a relationship always starts at some point. It may not be the beginning. It may be the day you got engaged. It may be the day after the wedding. It may, but it always starts small. It always, but it still starts visible. You can feel it. And if you are not tuned into your feelings and acknowledging what things feel like in your life and giving yourself permission to feel those feelings and act on those feelings, if you're not doing that, that small thing, what do you hear me say? Small things become big things, inevitably. So it means feeling it when it's small, which means knowing what your feelings are. And for a lot of guys, it's like, oh, feelings, that's for pussies. Fuck you. It's like, oh, yeah. Take that theory and see how your relationships blossom, princess. All right. Um, so you're asking the question, to repeat, how do you basically come back from you know altering your personality for peace to the point of you're basically non-recognizable to yourself? You go back to and, dis and discern where is it in your past that you were taught to tolerate when somebody is treating you in ways that don't feel good? that's where it started. When you were taught that your feelings don't matter, when you were taught, I just need to do everything, I just need to keep someone, or if I do everything for you, then then you'll love me a little bit. Or where, you were, where what was normalized was you never getting your needs met, your love needs met. Or where you had it normalized in your childhood that someone being hurtful to you was normal, and that's what mom and dad showed. Whatever it might be, there are origins that caused you to allow this to start small and get big and to contort yourself and bend yourself to the point you don't even recognize yourself anymore. I gotta do anything to either get love or to avoid criticism. You have to go back into those origins again. That's what my book is for. There's a hole in my love cup. That's what my uh, podcast is for, to help you begin to identify and have the courage to go into, deep into those root causes, the feelings that go with them and the implications of seeing these truths. All right, next question. All right, total out of left field, but I love it. I've written articles on this. This is good. Uh, and the question is, how do you feel about long-distance relationships? Um, I like them. <laughs> I've been in, my second marriage was a long-distance relationship. Uh, the one I'm presently in was in the beginning, and then we decided for a short-distance relationship, which is about a foot and a half to the other side of the bed which usually doesn't happen because her legs are draped over me or some shit, or one of her dogs is walking across my face, which is why our dogs don't sleep with us anymore. Anyway, wasn't really the question, was it? Long distance relationships. Um, I've written an article or two on it on my website. It's um, on badasscounseling.com and the pitfalls and so forth. What 
what makes long distance relationships particularly difficult is this, there's no, I mean, it's obvious, but there's no immediacy. You don't get the regular assurances that come with just a touch on the arm or brush behind you when I'm going to make the morning coffee and you're standing there at the counter or just, uh, you know, seeing them in the bed in the, in the morning, knowing they're in the bed, they're here with me. And what happens when we don't have regular sort of what I call micro assurances? We begin to have regular micro fears, right? You become much more dependent upon uh, those other interactions that you have that are generally going to be less frequent and often less big, right? And the mediums and the smalls, but uh, it's just can be more challenging to have that because you're not getting that daily sort of feedback loop of I like you, I like you, I like you. Now, some people are programmed well for this. You know, they're comfortable enough with themselves and they've they've let out their own pain that they don't need those regular reassurances. But some people depend on those, in which case, a uh, you know, uh, I mean, like more than just I love you today and, uh, you know, let's talk at dinner time on the phone or whatever. Um, and if you are a person who comes into relationships not liking yourself or insecure yourself or you're conditioned to believe maybe you're unlovable or unwantable or you're not good enough, you're not going to sit well in a long-distance relationship because you're always going to be doubting your own worth, needing that other person to confirm your worth. And in the moments when they're working or they're traveling for their work or whatever it might be, you're going to be questioning your own worth. And as a result, you're going to be questioning them because they're not there confirming your worth. So you must be off doing nefarious things. You see how it sort of snowballs there? Right. Um, and so long distance relationships can work if you both have the courage to talk about what you're really feeling and your real fears and not only talk about what I'm feeling, but to be present with the other person to what the other person is feeling and to honor the needs of each other and the wants of each other. But they can be really good. They can, because then coming back together, you know, it can be sweet. I've dealt with a lot of, you know, Navy families or family, you know, where they do their six month deployment at sea or um, homes where there are deployments to overseas or for war or for work, any type of work, it doesn't even have to be military. And that brings its own set of challenges, but it can be done, but there really has to be, it's such cliche, but there has to be communication, but not just let's talk, but talking about the real stuff going on inside of me, my fears, my longings, and how I'm feeling you, how you're feeling me, et cetera. All right, one more question, I think. All right, and the question is, oh, wow. Oh, we have to take this one. Take it. I just, all right. We've not had this one on the show before. I want to be with a man who will beat me because I don't feel lovable. I never thought I'd ever say that. Uh, first of all, I applaud you for saying it. Because oftentimes the problem in life is that we keep the most sacred stuff, the most scary stuff, uh, our truest thoughts and feelings, biggest fears, whatever it might be, or the biggest indicators of what's really going on, we keep it inside and the damage is done when our stuff doesn't come out. So I want to say this very sincerely, Nanny, I applaud you for saying that. Because it's the stuff we're afraid to say that oftentimes just getting it out of us really can feel relieving, you know, can be a release. Um, I want to be with a man who will beat me because I don't feel lovable. And then you said, I never thought I'd ever say that. Okay, um, you put that out there. You had the courage to put that out there, presumably because you wanted me to address it. Presumably because 
you see somewhere innately in there, and the mere fact that you say, I never thought I'd say that, says you see something sort of wrong there. And I'm not saying you're wrong or you're a bad person. I'm not saying that. But just it seems off to you, doesn't it? Right. And I even hesitated. And I see, I've, I've seen everything. And, you know, you think you've seen everything and you, there are always nuances or tweaks to things. It's like, oh, that's new. And this is uh, not far off. And I have seen it, just not on the show. But wanting a man who will beat me to confirm, basically, it's because you don't feel lovable. And so it's A, that I feel like that's all I deserve. But you're saying I want that to confirm your self-belief system. But the interesting thing is it's not your self-belief system. It's the belief system that was placed inside of you that says you're not lovable. Now, whether that was ever done with fists and hits or uh, weapons or belts or whatever it was as a child, it was. It doesn't matter how it was conveyed. What matters is that you were taught to feel that you suck, that you're not good enough, that you're unlovable. And so you're looking for someone who confirms what you already believe about yourself. And this is gonna sound crazy maybe, but for a lot of people who believe they are unlovable, if they actually meet someone who truly does love them, is kind to them, they don't believe it. They see them as a non-credible source. If Tommy comes along and he's a nice guy and he actually treats me well, I don't trust him because A, if he saw who I really am, he wouldn't love me right? And I don't trust them. I don't trust anybody that says something nice because I know I'm a piece of shit. So they must want something from me. So I would rather just have someone who's straight up honest and says, you're a piece of shit and who punches me in the face and takes my money because at least you're being honest with me because at least you're telling the truth because I am a piece of shit. And I'm telling you people, this is far more common than you think. All right, Nanny, I, my heart hurts for you. I mean, all three of us here in the studio are like, ugh. So I'm going to tell you this, you are lovable, even if you don't think it. You want to know how I know? I mean, definitively, not just kumbaya shit, I'm being nice and let's all be fucking namaste. Do you want to know how I know? I know because I know this. There is not one single child on the face of God's green earth or the, on the face of this big rock in the universe if you're not a God person. There's not one single child that comes out of the womb sucking. And I don't mean sucking the teat. I mean where they're bad. Not one. Every child that comes out of the womb is good, lovable. And you want to know how I know? I know firsthand. Well, secondhand, actually, my brother's wife, neonatal nurse for 30 plus years. I asked her, Amy, do kids come out of the womb bad? She looks at me like, you're a fucking idiot. No, Dumbo. <laughs> They're all great. They're all beautiful. Even the ones who have extra toes, not enough toes, born too early, lungs aren't well developed or cry a lot, whatever. They're all beautiful right? They're all God's children or they're all beautiful just innately, God person or not, all right? So for you to come to this age in your life, whether it's 30, 40, 50, whatever it is, and believe that you're unlovable, what that means is someone planted a lie inside of you that was never true to begin with. Someone planted the lie that you're unlovable, that you're no good, that this is all you deserve, that you're a piece of shit, whatever it is. And the way you heal from that is you go back in and you go into the deep stuff, and this is the scary, painful stuff, and this is why I tell people all healing requires courage. That is the fulcrum on which the entire thing turns. That is the Jesus pin on that helicopter, the one point of failure on which everything else hinges. And it's this, courage. 
You need to have the courage to go into it and go into your past, begin to flush out the pain, begin to identify the pain, begin to identify the peer, the fears and the incidents and the, those past memories that are so hypercharged with all those emotions and those messages, those underlying messages that you suck, that you're not good enough, that you don't matter. Once you go into that and go into it more and more and more, you begin to find the root causes, the root sources of your feeling unlovable. And with that being said, I will say, and, and the work doesn't have to take forever, but it does take courage and a willingness to do it because Nanny, you don't wanna be in a relationship. I know you think you do. You don't wanna be in a relationship with someone who hits you or even someone who puts you down or someone who neglects you or ignores you. You wouldn't be listening to me unless you knew that was that that's what I sell that that's what I preach, that that's what I'm about. And you're coming to me because you know it's not right. And you know somewhere deep down inside of you, that spark is burning that says, I am good. It is still alive because if that spark weren't still alive, you'd be dead. That is what keeps us alive, that divine flame, that eternal flame in you. And it may be just the flicker that says, I am good. Somewhere in you, it's there and that you are lovable. But the, the pipes feeding gas to that flame, like on your water heater, in your basement have become so encrusted and corroded that the gas isn't able to go through, to get through in order to stoke that flame, right? And the crud, it's all the encrustations in those copper pipes and so forth that pipe in the gas, that's what has to come out. And that requires going into that painful past of yours. Before I sign off this evening, uh, Rob, any thoughts on the show? Well, we got 50 shades of Sven tonight. Did we now? Yeah, we just did. What do you mean by that, young fella? Well, that relates to the last question. There are relationships in which that sort of thing happens. Uh, I never saw the movie or read the book. Mm. Do you think that affects my inability to understand what you said there? I think you understood it perfectly, and you had terrific advice. You're a fine man. I'm Same. sorry. No, I'm just telling the truth. You're the best. It's, I love Rob so much. I'm occasionally authentic. <laughs> You're always authentic. Rob's the best. You guys, this has been fun. It's it's just, even when we're going deep and looking at heavy stuff, it's it's fun, it's helpful. And yes, it can be entertaining and hopefully enlightening for you guys. Um, but in the end, in the end, I'm not the one doing the work. In the end, you are the one doing the work if you go into your shit and do the healing work. And let, I'm telling you, the other side and the the mountaintop existence and your, your level of normal, your enjoyment threshold of life elevates. I'm not about bringing anyone to normal. I'm about bringing you to excellence. I'm about bringing you to happiness. And the deep work is what requires it. I'm not into coping. I'm into healing. I'm not into normal and stable. I'm into aliveness. Keep doing the work. Keep having the courage to get more vulnerable and go deeper and find those root causes, scary as they may be. And the more you get that shit out, the happier you're gonna become, more spontaneous energy. You're gonna have so much greater clarity and a sense of inner calm and peace. And you will purr as quietly in life as little Carly, our studio cat, is purring on the studio table right now. And if you wanna see it, go over to YouTube because it's live right now and it stays up. All of our lives stay up on uh, YouTube with the video. That is the only platform on which you can get the video uncut is YouTube or tune into the Badass Counseling Show podcast. We have new episodes twice a week, lightning rounds on Sundays, and we have counseling rounds on Thursdays. Thank you so much on behalf of KC in the booth and Rob with the Rockets sitting next to me. Thank you for tuning into the Badass Counseling Show, no matter where you're tuning in from. Have a kick-ass day. 
The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.